Good day, everybody. Hope you're all staying healthy and happy as you can be through these turbulent times and hope everybody's continuing to practice social distancing. We see some major benefits from that across the US economy. This is a follow up to the last webinar we did with our chief risk officer, Dr. Lev Bordovsky, where he and myself, Brett Hickey, founder and CEO of Starmount Capital, will talk about what we've learned from the virus and any updates on it as well as talk about the economy globally, as well as our views on the US economy. Star Mountain is a specialized lower middle market asset manager with over a billion dollars in assets. We have two core investment strategies. One is providing loans to established US-based small and medium-sized businesses, often along with additional equity capital. Two is purchasing limited partnership interests in other lower middle market funds from investors who are seeking early liquidity. Our team has been investing across multiple economic cycles for the past 20 or so years and has experienced from Credit Suisse, GSO Blackstone, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, and Merrill Lynch. We have offices across the country and are highly focused on the US economy. Uh, we also do have outsourced people in India with an office we opened 10 years ago. We hope the information today will be helpful for you as you think about the virus and you think about the economy more broadly. Uh, Lev, thank you for uh, joining us today. Thanks, Brett. Uh, let's start with an update on the virus. What do we know and what kind of forecasts do we see in front of us? As of April 5th, there have been 1.3 million cases reported worldwide, of which more than 267,000 have recovered and there have been, unfortunately, over 70,000 deaths. As of April 6th, there are just under 350,000 confirmed cases and just under 10,000 confirmed deaths in the United States. Some researchers estimate that up to 80% of infected people will show no or only mild symptoms, which we certainly hope. information that I think is top of mind for everybody is when can we think about lockdown being released? When can we think about people getting back to work, children going back to school, and so forth? Based on this research led by John Hopkins University, BCG, and others, you can see that current estimates of the U.S. lockdown with respect to the earliest states are on the short end starting with the second week of June, on the long end of the estimate, the third week of July. So we would anticipate based on this and based on the death rate trends that we've seen and have been forecasted, that folks should be anticipating lockdown remaining for at least another two months. One of the things that's interesting here is the peak new case cases date, as you can see in column number two, that was estimated to be the first week of May, there is a possibility, the data is still too early for us to know, but there is a possibility that we may have hit that early, which would be fantastic. As of the last couple of days, the death rate in the US seems to be coming down, but again, it's too early for that data to be conclusive, but we are certainly hopeful. From a symptoms perspective, now that there is enough data and information, we think it's helpful for people to think about how long 
their symptoms might last. And of course, there's a lot of data and information out there on what symptoms might be. But the main takeaway here is that the average symptoms seem to persist for approximately two weeks, which is much longer than your average cold. Lev, one of the other things that we were looking at here and talking about is the time it takes for cases to double. And as far as looking at flattening the curve, what can we learn from some of the different countries as well as any newer intelligence information that we've recently seen? Brett, so it seems that around the 40-day period from kind of the onset of the of the epidemic to the point when cases are starting to really decline has been established. Um, it obviously varies from country to country. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the, the hopeful um, set of data that's saying, you know, this, this, is, this, is gonna, this is gonna be behind us uh, fairly soon. Uh, in yeah, in particular, I think uh, it, it's worth uh, talking about Italy, which had uh, some of the worst uh, outbreak in, in the world, and, and Italy is, is definitely past its peak, and the number of new cases is declining pretty quickly now. That's great. Um, certainly, uh, friends and family in Italy were uh, hopeful for all of them as everywhere else, and that's great news. Thank you, Lev. Uh, what about this? Uh, no, no piece of data is ever conclusive, but taking a data-driven approach to analyzing the virus, what do you take away from the correlation analysis here with respect to the virus and warmer climates or temperature stated otherwise? Yeah, so, so this, is, this is now a, a pretty uh, big set of data where they're looking at uh, different locations where the, the epidemic is broken out and comparing that the, the uh, total case per, per, per million people, meaning the, the concentration of, of the epidemic uh, versus the uh, average, average monthly temperature for March, right? So specific time zone, specific uh, temperature zone. And, and there's definite correlation, which may indicate, again, there's no definite proof, but it may indicate that this virus, like the flu, is seasonal. And if that's the case, as we get warmer temperature in North America, uh, you know, we should see a reduction um, in just from that alone, we should see a reduction in, in the number of infections. That's great. We're certainly hopeful that that, uh, that trend and that data will continue to persist. A couple other pieces of information that we thought would be helpful for people is looking at the death rates uh, in China and in Italy and looking at the age groups. As you can see here, the vast majority of people that have been impacted, unfortunately, are uh, elderly people. And uh, certainly we hope that uh, people continue to be very vigilant on social distancing and helping uh, loved ones and elderly people. And as you can see here from the younger population, uh, thankfully the virus doesn't seem to be having too large of an impact on that part of the population. From a condition perspective, uh, there's also the data continues to improve, uh, showing that those that do not have pre-existing health conditions seem to be at much lower risk. Uh, unfortunately, folks with cardiovascular disease, where this virus hits your lungs and other, has, of course, the largest impact and other challenges like diabetes 
uh, and general health uh, have issues. So uh, more good reasons for everybody to do the best they can to focus on general health and wellness and uh, certainly to be as protective as we can be uh, for those that may have ailments. Lev, as we look at South Korea, uh, according to this report from McKinsey, where South Korea has had strong testing, what do you think we can learn as we look at what has happened in South Korea and as we overlay that with the rapid trends where the U.S. is aggressively ramping up their testing capability, which I presume, given the uh, capabilities and innovation within the U.S., that this should testing should continue to ramp up even faster. What, what do you think we can learn as we think about observing South Korea? So South Korea was uh, a very aggressive in, in its attempts to uh, contain the virus, and 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 they did two things. They did an uh, enormous amount of testing. They also uh, wanted to make sure they track all the you know interactions. They want to know if you know if somebody tested positive, who they interacted with, and uh, and and find those people and, and test them as well. You know, so they they would follow the follow the uh, the dots, so to say, and and, and that's been uh, very effective in slowing down what they call flattening the curve, so so that it doesn't overwhelm the health system. Um, and and uh, so so testing is critical. So if you look at the U.S. as it ramps up testing, we uh, will see two things happening. One is we'll get more data onto in terms of uh, what percentage of the population is infected, uh, and what percentage of of the infected population has complications, uh, which which is difficult to do if you don't have proper testing. You know, the only thing you see is people in the emergency room. But this will give give uh, people a, a sort of heads up of you know how many cases are, are out there, and how to contain them. Uh, how is it spreading, and so on. So testing is critical. One of the things that that just came out recently is a is a, a test that allows a, a much more rapid uh, results result, um, and, and that will be very helpful because you know waiting for a week for for the test results creates real issues for people. Uh, so uh, the combination of this new technology and, and a bigger effort in terms of testing, I think will help contain the, you know, contain the epidemic faster. That's great. And a big thanks to all the companies out there that have been assisting with developing additional testing and helping find ways to disseminate and get the tests out, as well as to all of the volunteers and, uh, of course, different medical workers. A big sincere uh, thank you to all of you for your efforts, uh, tremendously helpful for all of us in humanity. Uh, as we look to vaccines, uh, it seems like lab, there's a lot of things to be hopeful for as the world is really rallying and companies are rallying behind fighting this horrible disease. What can you tell us about what we know today around potential vaccines? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that it, um, it, it's great that you know, as, as terrible as this um, situation is, this pandemic, I'm, I'm glad that it's happening now versus, say, 10 years ago when, when technology um, and medical advances weren't what they are today. I mean, the, the way they can do, you know, RNA, DNA analysis these days, the speed at which they can do this uh, has helped launch multiple 
uh, studies in, in terms of both medications and vaccines uh, and much quicker than it would have been just a few years ago. Uh, they've got supercomputers working on this, uh, on this problem and labs uh, globally uh, doing this. So, so uh, the, the progress has been tremendous and, and very rapid. Obviously to bring vaccine, a new vaccine to market at, at, on a broad scale is, is pretty difficult to do. Um, and it takes some time. So there's, there's one that's, uh, that's finishing the first phase of clinical trials, may start the second phase this spring, uh, which is the, the early one, uh, but, but a bunch will, will be in the, in the first phase of clinical trials, you know, in the next few months. And then uh, some people think that the first vaccines will be available at least to healthcare workers who are the front lines of this in, um, uh, sometime late late this year, like a, you know, sort of Decemberish, and then within the next sort of twelve months, we should see a a broader uh, use of vaccines. Um, uh, Bill Gates, uh, the foundation, just uh, 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 launched uh, a program to start building factories to mass produce vaccines on a, on a large scale. Uh, so we'll see that uh, ramping up uh, sort of early next year. That's great, and yeah, big thanks to the uh, the Gates Foundation. That's that's great to see everybody rallying, and the speed at which this is moving is really unprecedented, which is which is uh, you know really a testament to today's technology and healthcare workers, as as you said, Lev. Let's switch gears now. Let's talk about the economy. We we know that the virus, of course, has a massive impact globally, in addition to the U.S. on the economic impact for the second quarter that we're in, as well as as we think about recovery. First is, on a relative basis, for the entire calendar year 2020, this data is, of course, ever-evolving, which will continue to keep people updated on. But as of current estimates, uh, the U.S. is projected to have a GDP decrease of 2.4% for the calendar year 2020, not just for the second quarter for sake of clarity, which will be, of course, a much harder hit quarter. On a relative basis to other countries, the US seems to be in much better shape, which we'll talk further about later as to why and what are some of the drivers behind some of these estimates. One of the things uh, that helps is the US's strength of the US economy in general, and it's a self further self-reliance on a relative basis lev as we as we look at global trade the u.s is much less reliant on global trade relative to other countries why does this matter why is it relevant what should people know about that i think the important thing to keep in mind here is that um because the the u.s relies much more on domestic demand than other countries um you know obviously we'll go through this, this sharp downturn but once people uh once the consumer starts coming back and and it will be a it will be a slow process obviously but once the consumer starts coming back once companies are st starting to reopen um you're going to start seeing a, a a big jump in domestic demand which is which is a major driver of of the u.s gdp versus say other countries that may have to wait for uh, international demand to pick up, and that may be slower to to uh, 
you know, take place. Uh, in that sense, there's an advantage uh, for the U.S. that, you know, once your domestic demand starts strengthening, uh, the economy should rebound. That's great. Thanks a lot. As we, as we now look at the money supply, the U.S.'s money supply has grown dramatically. Talk to us, Lev, about why this is relevant, why we should care about this, and how this can ultimately assist the U.S. economy in getting back going uh, after this pandemic has been taken care of. So th th there's, there's, there's a great deal of liquidity out there um, and uh, has been for some time, but particularly recently, the Fed's actions um, resulted in, in, a, in, a, in a massive, unprecedented injection of liquidity into the system. And uh, as a result, you'll you see you know, rise in, in deposits uh, at banks and uh, you know, there's gonna be a lot of cash out there. At some point, uh, people will start using that cash, whether it's you know for investment or or um, other purposes. Uh, but um, you know, with with cash yielding zero right right now, the Fed brings rates to zero. Uh, you, you know, your options become um, pretty limited as far as you know what you can do with cash. And so, uh, as soon as people get a little more comfort, you're going to start seeing flows into into high yielding type assets. Um, you know, whether it's uh, you know fixed income or or uh, you know investing in businesses or other things. Yes, it will take time. This is a slow process, but uh, you know, sitting on cash is is going to be is going to be difficult for people. Eventually, it'll start. It will have to start moving through the economy. That's very helpful, and it, it, you know, having an unprecedented amount of over sixteen trillion dollars in the money market supply is is really a, a big positive uh, factor for a hopeful uh, U.S. recovery in the second half of this year. Uh, as we look at other forecasts to think about the year 2020, one of the things we thought would be helpful to share is the S&P 500's 2020 earnings per share or EPS forecast. And as you can see here, we've compiled different research from banks ranging from Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, through to Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup. And as you can see, the forecasts range for earnings per share for the year 2020 for the S&P 500 companies to be somewhere between negative 14% and negative 33% relative to 2019. So as you think about what earnings might look like uh, for the economy, the S&P 500 is a, a good gauge. And for those of you focused on the public markets and valuations associated, we thought this would be helpful uh, intel for you. As we look now, Lev, to learning from China and as we continue to observe China, what, what can we observe from current trends in China? What data is valuable and helpful? And what data do you think is also missing perhaps from some pent-up demand, which, which might be um, a little bit overstating actual demand. Sure, so, so China's undergone an, an unprecedented contraction as far as their economy was being shut down for uh, you know, a good period of time. And uh, as the government re reopened everything and said, look, let's, let's get back to business, uh, you start seeing a, um, 
in, in many cases faster than expected rebound in activity, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, electricity production or steel, steel demand. Uh, the, these these uh, indicators have, have been rebounding uh, very quickly. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously still issues and bottlenecks in China and, uh, and they will continue to hamper growth. Uh, but activity is returning and has returned uh, rapidly. The, the, uh, I spoke to somebody who has a factory out in China and they said, you know, in, basically in uh, late February, early March, there was nothing going on. Everything was shut down. You know, once you got to kind of late, late March, uh, you start seeing activities and, and uh, orders coming through and, and manufacturing picking up uh, pretty quickly. You saw that in the PMI data that, that showed a rebound, a shockingly strong rebound actually really surprised everybody. Part of that, is, as Brett mentioned, is, is, uh, is some pent up demand where you know, factories were shut down, orders were coming in and nothing was coming out. And, and so now the, the backlog of orders is getting, is getting executed and, and there will be challenges because you know, orders from the rest of the world uh, have slowed, you know, dramatically. Um, and China is still an export economy. And so that, that will be a challenge. And so you, you'll have some slower recovery paths uh, in a lot of these indicators. Uh, but, but China's improved its domestic demand and, you know, consumer demand quite a bit in recent years. And so um, if they just rely on that, they, they should see a, a you know, uh, gradual recovery. That's great. And then as we look at another piece of data from China, uh, what are your thoughts here, Lev, on, on what we can think of from traffic data? Anything uh, you think you glean from this? Yeah, so so people are getting back on the roads, obviously not at the rate that we've seen uh, a year ago, um, uh, but they're getting back on the road. Uh, if you look at uh, things like airline traffic, so uh, people are getting back on the planes. The international flights are still not functioning, and that's partially because the government wants to limit uh, international flights. Uh, but domestic flights have picked up uh, sharply. And so your, your kind of, uh, you know, passenger activity, trains, uh, traffic and, and airlines are seeing um, not, not quite back to normal levels, but, but certainly a huge recovery from, from what we saw after the Lunar New Year. Hey, General, that's great. Now, as we look at unemployment forecasts and GDP forecasts, this is some interesting data. As we think about the last recession, the peak unemployment rate in the US from the last recession was 10% in October of 2009. Current forecasts range from anywhere from 15%, as you can see here, to potentially even larger than that uh, level. Well, we just think about unemployment what, what are your views on that? That's a major difference, right? Thinking about the unemployment rate being 50% worse and some forecasts are even beyond that, uh, that that aren't here relative to the last recession. That sounds like a major hit. What are, what are our views on how quickly some of that employment might come back as we think relative to the last recession? Sure. So it, it took years for the labor markets to return to their pre 
you know, pre-08 levels in the last uh, recession. Uh, economists think that this rebound will be quicker. You know, again, it may, t it may take a couple of years to, to get back to kind of normal levels, uh, levels that we're used to. And, and in some industries, uh, it may take longer. Um, you know, there, there will be situations where certain, certain sectors, you will never have a, you know, a rebound to, to pre-crisis levels. Uh, but it, overall, uh, the the rebound should be faster than um, than we saw in, in 08. And you know, it, it, the 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 public realizes that this is yes, it's a scary situation. But it's it once once we get a handle on it, uh, the fundamentally the U.S. economy. Uh, is is functioning. There's no concerns about banks going under, which we had in, in, in 2008. You know, people are not worried about putting deposits with, with their banks or leaving their payroll cash with the banks, which was the case in 2008. So the confidence around the, the, the uh, you know, business and finances should recover very quickly. And with it, you should see a, a rebound in... Um, in employment and in growth. That's helpful. Thanks a lot. And uh, good for people to just think about the level of unemployment that we are recently likely to hit and that things aren't going to snap back. We've had conversations with people that talk about this V-shaped recession as if all the jobs just come back and, and that certainly won't be the case. The jobs coming back will be measured in quarters uh, not days and not weeks. As we as we look to Q2 earlier, we talked about for the year 2020, what the GDP forecasts are for the country. And as we think about Q2 and the major impacts that are likely in front of us for this quarter, the ranges are as light as a 10% negative change in quarterly GDP and as penalizing as a 40% change in GDP. So people should expect, of course, a pretty difficult uh, and challenging Q2 for revenues, for earnings, and for continued uh, layoffs from an employment perspective. As we, as we look led to hopefully thinking about the economy pulling back, let's now, let's now focus on some of the data that will hopefully assist us in coming back and assist the economy coming back. Obviously, the government has really pushed unprecedented levels of capital and stimulus in, and they've moved. Uh, everything can be done differently, but seem to have moved quite quickly and made major moves on rates and on providing additional capital. Let's talk about some other information. What do you think about the household debt service payments as a percentage of disposable personal income in the US and how that might benefit us relative to where we were at heading into the last recession, love. Sure, so, so this crisis is, is obviously severe. We're gonna see a, a massive spike in household delinquencies and people not you know, missing payments and there will be you know, a huge uh, increase in, in failure to pay mortgages, rents, credit cards, and so on. But but on a relative basis, if 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 I had to say, you know, if we had to take this crisis and say when would you when would you want to have this crisis, 
uh, we're far better off now than we were, you know, 10, 20 years ago, simply because the consumer, uh, after the financial crisis, the consumer has been relatively conservative. I know people don't like to talk about this, but, but that's the case. The U.S. consumer has been conservative. Uh, you know, you don't see uh, home equity loans going, going through the roof. People don't borrow against their house to take a, a vacation. Uh, that hasn't been happening, uh, you know. So uh, the you know, your typical household's been, it's been cautious because of the financial crisis. And because of that, the, the current situation uh, will be managed better than it would have 10 years ago or 20 years ago. That's helpful. And in our last presentation, we showed how the, the U.S. banking system is in dramatically better shape overlaid with the U.S. consumer being, as you can see here, in dramatically better shape. Let's look now at another data point as far as household savings as a percentage of disposable personal income. What's your takeaway from this, Lev? Yeah. So again, after after the crisis, Americans said, "You know what? I, I better I better start saving." And and it's almost beca became a cultural thing. In fact, if you know, if people talk about millennials and so on. A lot of millennials are have lived through, you know, as as very young people lived through the financial crisis. Said, "I'm going to save," and uh, and. It, you know, a lot of people don't have much savings and the media keeps showing that. But the reality is that the savings rate uh, has been, um, has improved quite a bit since, uh, you know, since the financial crisis and stayed at that level. And this kind of talks to the uh, uh, relative conservatism of, of U.S. households versus you know, households say elsewhere in the world, like in Canada or Australia, where you know uh, households are more extended uh, on their on their debt and saving less. So, so I think this is uh, this is important to know. Again, a lot of households will will uh, you know file for bankruptcy or or uh, fail to make payments, and this is going to be a huge problem. But it's it's. The, the, the consumer, the American consumer is positioned much better now than, than you know, uh, at, at, you know, decades past. Yeah, that's a good reminder. This, this isn't to say that we are not going to go through a tough recession. This is just to say that we're heading into this tough recession with a lot of tools that are a lot stronger than we were heading into the last recession. That's a great uh, point to reinforce. As we look uh, Lev, on a relative basis between countries, looking at household sector debt as well as corporate sector debt, uh, what are your thoughts on this information? So, uh, as we said earlier, you know, household debt growth um, has been has been uh, you know, if you just look at the overall household leverage, uh, it it has uh, has declined since since uh, the financial crisis. Uh, Again, the media likes to show total debt levels and total debt levels are always growing because the economy is getting bigger, right? The population is growing. People, you know, people's, people's salaries are getting higher, right? So uh, your total debt levels are always growing. But uh, if you look at sort of total debt to GDP ratio, um, corporate debt has grown quite a bit. Um, but your household debt has been, is, you know, has not budged on, on a relative basis. And, and relative to other countries, I think the U.S. is positioned reasonably well. 
uh, to withstand to stand this crisis. Not to say that we're not going to see, you know, corporate defaults and so on, uh, but uh, but I think it's a it's it's a good place to be uh, relative to say where China is or, or or Canada for that matter. Yep, that's great. Just thinking about on a relative value to other countries, how folks may think about the U.S. economy in general. Switching gears to from an economic perspective into an industry perspective, uh, I guess some of the views here, Lev, as we think about the distress ratios by industry, of course, nothing people wouldn't expect here other than the percentage of companies that are distressed uh, is really systematic across different industries, be it air transportation, oil and gas, uh, retailers for the most part. Uh, any other information that you think is particularly interesting here and less obvious that people should be thinking about? Hey, you'll see some of this uh, showing up in, in regional economies, for example, uh, if you look at Texas, um, it's it's unfortunate, but you know Texas has a double whammy of, you know, collapsed oil prices and um, you know and the epidemic, and and it's just is brutal impact on 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 the on the economy. Uh, so some of these things will propagate through. Uh, you will probably see government support in some cases. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if this talk about. Um, the federal government, uh, for example, bailing out uh, or taking stakes in, in airlines, for example, uh, you, you may see other types of uh, sort of, um, you know, federal government support for, for these companies. Uh, and you, there'll probably be a shakeout, you know, you will see uh, defaults uh, spiking in, in the, some of these sectors. Uh, you know, people supporting airline firms or, or people in the oil and gas sector, you'll see a rapid increase in defaults, uh, retailers, leisure, um, especially the small business sector, you might see some, some stress, but they, you know, uh, things are, um, yeah, so it's going to be difficult for some of these sectors. Yeah, um, it's a good, it's a good point you bring up as you think about different geographical regions and the impacts that might be a domino effect if you're in a area where a lot of the jobs and a lot of the income and a lot of people spending money on everything in a place like Texas that unfortunately has a lot of oil and gas and they've continued to work on diversifying their economy over the years but still has a, a large oil and gas exposure, how that can ripple through uh, to fewer people having jobs and the impact that can have on a geographical basis when you look at it on a more micro economy for those of us that are investing in, in private businesses to think about that that's a helpful a data point as we look now from the past into you know forecasting the future uh, this is interesting as far as thinking about how long certain things might take to recover as we look into you know, a year or more into the future. Uh, similar question, Lev, anything that you think would be particular, particularly valuable for people to think about as they think through how long certain industries might take to recover? Yeah, I think the, the, the way to think about it is, is how, uh, how the 
the recovery will be staged, right? Um, because people think about the downturn, they're not thinking about how the recovery will be staged and it will be staged, right? So give you an example. I have a friend who um, is a CEO at a, at a, a company that does um, mystery room um, uh, type, type stuff at, at the shopping, shopping mall where you, you know, you get locked in the mystery room and, and you, you know, you, uh, you have to get, get, get out, escape the room basically. And, uh, you know, the, the company shut down, there's nothing going on. They, they furloughed all the workers. Uh, and so the question is, can they return to business? Eventually, you know, companies will want to, will want to send groups to do this and individuals will want to, will want to come back and do this. How they're going to return? They're not going to reopen all their stores, right? What's going to happen is they're going to re, re, you're going to open the, mo the most profitable store at the, at the, uh, the shopping mall wants foot traffic returns, right? And they're going to start with one store and see how it goes, right? And then, and then the next quarter, they may open a couple more stores. So, so there's going to be this process of slowing, slowly bring back uh, businesses online. And yeah. some businesses are, are going to come back faster than others. Uh, and th this kind of shows where, you know, what that spectrum is. I guess that's the importance of thinking about for businesses and those small businesses in particular, the liquidity and managing their liquidity as they think about how to bring sectors, divisions of their business back online. How can they phase back up, uh, which we, we certainly hope they will uh, fare reasonably well with. And, and as that transitions then over to the stimulus package, uh, a huge $2 trillion U.S. economic stimulus package, uh, unfortunately seems to not be as helpful for certain private equity-owned businesses due to the employee affiliate rule test, but for those businesses that are generally not owned by larger private equity firms that have under 500 employees, uh, there's a seem like a tremendous amount of capital available for those that are able to navigate and move through and assist with their liquidity position where a loan uh, can be a very low interest rate loan and potentially turn into a loan that is completely forgiven as well, effectively a grant as I think about it, as long as they, they do the right things. Uh, how do you think about this, Levin? How do you think about and, and what can we currently learn about the data information? I know from our portfolio, uh, thankfully we have a lot of great relationships with banks that have worked actively work with us to really get in front of this with our portfolio companies but there, there's tremendous demand and backlog for that what are you currently seeing as far as how quickly this stimulus package is is moving through the system so the, the first thing uh, I'd like to mention on this is that I track on a daily basis the cash levels that the U.S. Treasury is uh, maintained at the Fed, um, which is where they—that's their bank, effectively—and uh, and that reached a record. In fact, spiked in recent days, now approaching uh, 700 billion of cash. Right, so the the U.S. Treasury has been has been issuing uh, bills at an unprecedented rate, you know, borrowing, and so now they amassed this this cash balance which they uh, are getting ready to deploy. Uh, so so they're, they're trying to move as fast as the federal government can move. And uh, the, the fastest thing that will happen is 
uh, I think will, will be the checks going to individuals, right? So the IRS is looking at its records and saying, okay, we've got all these people, we're gonna send them checks. And, and that's gonna be really helpful. That's gonna help people pay their bills at least through, the, you know, through um, the next couple of months. Um, and, and that liquidity will enter the economy and, and uh, you, you know, we'll start seeing flow of money. Because what, what's happened in the economy is basically it's clogged up, right? Their individuals are not paying their, their, their bills and, and, you know, companies who rely on those payments are not paying their bills and so on. And so the system is clogged up. And what this is an attempt to, to do is, is unclog the system at least partially or slowly. Uh, and so you got the, the uh, you know, the two trillion flowing through, uh, you know, there's already been help for, um, corporate debt and municipal debt because, because of some of the actions the Fed has taken. Uh, and so municipalities can borrow. Uh, that market has, has opened up again. Corporations have been borrowing rapidly because again, the, some of the Fed actions and, um, and so, uh, you know, uh, investment grade corporates have been issuing huge amounts of debt. They're also tapping, uh, tapping credit lines at banks at, at, at unprecedented rates. So, so there's liquidity coming in uh, to sustain them. Um, and that's, that's this, so this package will be, you know, extraordinarily helpful. It's just, it's just going to be, take some time to push the money, this much money through the economy. Two trillion doesn't just enter the economy, it takes time. Uh, one, one good piece of news from today is uh, the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin uh, is now seeking an additional $250 billion uh, for, um, for the small business uh, program. Uh, that's in addition to what's what's here, and so you're going to see uh, small businesses getting uh, loans, in many cases loans that can be forgiven if they maintain payrolls, uh, which which is tremendous and and will will uh, uh, cushion the blow uh, of this of this crisis. Yeah, and that's great, and that's in addition to what you can see here that 349 billion, so another 250 billion is a very substantial amount of money, and as folks can see on this chart, the loan amount. Uh, it's based on payroll up to $10 million or two and a half times average total monthly payroll uh, over the last 12 months. And that is at a very low interest rate, actually as low as half of 1% uh, without personal guarantees. And if all the capital is used properly in supporting employees and following other guidelines, up to 100% of that alone can be forgiven. So that, that's really uh, something quite incredible and substantial that the U.S. is doing. What, one last quick uh, note here as we touch on the credit markets, uh, the BDC index, a lot of people have been asking us about views around this, and so we thought we'd share a couple pieces of information. One, uh, business development companies, uh, which are generally uh, lending firms uh, that have the ability to borrow up to two times leverage, and they also have a 30% eligibility bucket, which can have higher amounts of leverage in it, including many of them utilize the CLO technology that can be six times or more levered. Uh, a lot of the concerns are underlying credits that might be highly levered, depending on the BDC, of course, not all of them systematically, but these are the concerns that drives a lot of fear. And then the amplification effect of the fact that they themselves are levered and how will that play? And as we can see here, uh, you can see two things. The BDC index 
going back through the last recession, you can see the downturn and ultimately the recovery and here the sharp drop. When we magnify the recent sharp drop on a year to date, you can see that the BDC index has dropped by uh, approximately 50%. So really deep, hard drops. Uh, a lot of people say, is that a good time to buy or not? It really depends. Uh, each BDC is different. They don't have the same type of guidelines as a bank might have. And so uh, for investors really understanding the assets, understanding the portfolio, understanding fund level leverage and risks that the business might be having, versus uh, systematic, presumably some of the BDCs will have real challenges and potentially go under and be required to sell uh, assets uh, at potentially not very attractive valuations. Um, other BDCs will presumably uh, do well and will be able to prudently manage uh, through the recession. So it's really on a, I think a case by case basis, even though it is an index, uh, just like any other index, but each company is really a different one. And the key things really around that uh, from a risk perspective, fund level leverage, same thing we covered last time, company level leverage, understanding that, try to understand adjustments to EBITDA, which means that your company level leverage can be uh, higher than potentially stated if you have a lot of adjustments to EBITDA, where for example, we saw businesses that were opening fitness centers and they would ask for adjustments of saying, well, let's assume that these five other fitness centers that we have signed a lease on are open, are running, and are running at the average levels of profitability. So give us an assumption that they are generating that type of positive EBITDA. Well, of course, with the economy stalled and people not going to gyms, the lease payments and the expenses continue, but those are not coming online, certainly at anywhere near the pace that they would have hoped. So those adjustments uh, could in fact turn to zero for a quarter or two as things eventually will slowly come back in the second half of the year. And it really comes down to a business having the liquidity, the balance sheet and low enough leverage to be able to withstand and work through those challenges. Um, but those can be pretty substantial. And then trying to understand what kind of covenants borrowers have to deal with these challenges as we know uh, heading into a pretty toppy market that we just got out of uh, a lot of the larger market lenders were persistently doing covenant light loans that can have additional uh, risks associated with it uh, and then from an ownership perspective a lot of people are looking at folks that have syndicated loans and how does that create a dynamic to work through and have people come together to form decisions um, and every loan really is different. Um, so there's a lot of complexity associated with all of that. We wish we could give some clean, simple responses, but ultimately there's a tremendous amount of complexity uh, that requires a lot of uh, horsepower and data to be able to look through, to analyze things. Uh, but we hope that is helpful for everybody. Uh, a real big thank you to all of the healthcare workers out there, the volunteers out there, the business owners and the employees and everybody really rallying together in this global pandemic. Uh, we wish you all well. We thank you all for supporting. Uh, our charitable foundation with Star Mountain is looking at other ways to uh, help support the economy in addition to our for-profit business providing capital to the businesses to help grow and, and hopefully help assist the economy in recovering in the second half of the year. Uh, we hope this was helpful for all of you and uh, we wish you all the best.
Thank you all and stay safe and healthy.